What happens in the morning when you awaken? Okay, to wake and open your eyes, but sometimes we wake up and we refuse to open our eyes <laughs> for uh, for a short while. But what happens in the morning when you wake up? That uh, first thing I want to point out here is your mind kicks into gear. Immediately you start thinking about something. Uh, it might be how quickly can I push off that buzzer to give me five or ten more minutes. Or if you had a really good night's rest and you feel real good, you might say, yay, I've got another day, exciting day ahead of me. Or if it's not been quite a good night, you might wish you were, uh, maybe you're still tired and would like just a, a little while longer to fold your hands in a little the turning of the, of the head and thinking about that. But our minds, the point here is our minds kick into gear. Now, it's interesting that you know, our minds really don't stop, do they? We have dreams, and what happens in our sleep is a, a matter of a lot of study, you know, why we sleep and what happens and what's, what's good about it and uh, how our, our bodies or our minds formulate what's transpired. And sometimes our dreams are a little bit off, <laughs> off base. We don't, we don't know how these things get into our minds and uh, the thoughts we might have. Uh, but your mind really doesn't turn off. Uh, how many of you ever had a CT scan or a PET scan? Uh, well, fair number. I mean, what, what they notice in that is that they, when they're looking for cer- certain things in your body, uh, there are a couple of places that are always active. One is your heart. It doesn't turn off. And your brains don't turn off. Those scans show there's something going on in that organ, in that part of your body. And uh, we have these dreams, and sometimes they're vivid, sometimes they're not. And we wake up, and we can't remember uh, anything about the dream except that, boy, it was pretty exciting, or it, it was made, made us uncomfortable, whatever that might be. But we have our minds are active. Uh, one of the bad things about some of the cultures around the world is they talk about emptying our minds, which is, of course, a dangerous thing to do. But that's, you know, you ever tried to think, well, not think about something? And it's, you know, (laughs) that's what you think about. Uh, Whatever it is, the mind cannot be turned off. And so that leads me to my purpose today. I'd like to review what God says about using our minds. And if you want a title for the sermon... But it all starts in the mind. It all starts in the mind. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we'll analyze the first two or three verses that Paul writes here to the Romans. Romans 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And the word beseech is a a strong exhortation. It's a uh, an urgent request. He's, uh, in a sense, he's begging them to consider these matters, to 
it's a, it's a uh, an entreaty he's made with them for with emotion. He's conveying some some intensity about that. It talks about here this uh, beseeches them that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, that is as opposed to the dead sacrifices that were part of the old covenant. That we are to present ourselves, our physical being, which is what we do, how we live, our actions, and even our thoughts, as we'll see in, in verse two. But it is certainly a contrast to what he says elsewhere in the in the, in the Bible. You know, Hebrews ten talks about the dead sacrifices, that they were only a reminder of sin. In Psalm chapter 40, verse 6, Psalm 40, verse 6, I won't turn there, but it just it talks about the sacrifices and offerings were something, there were things that God really did not desire initially. They were only added because of the disobedience. And in Psalm 4, verse 5, we are admonished or we are encouraged to offer the sacrifices of righteousness. God expects us to have good fruits in which to offer ourselves to him. And he says here then, this living sacrifice is a reasonable service. Uh, one of the other translations renders that irrational, which is it, this is a, a point that makes sense. That when you consider what God has done for us by calling us, by healing us, by giving us understanding of his word and his plan, making us a part of his church and his body, when you think about all the things that God does for us, then it's rational, it's a reasonable thing to expect us to respond and obey and serve him, follow his admonitions, to serve him with the rest of our lives. In verse 2, he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Words are, again, these are, these are chosen, I'm sure, with great purpose on Paul's, Paul's part, that he's telling us that we should not be conformed to the world. That this, this, uh, this word being conformed, is part of uh, following the pattern of the world and how we do that, and whether it be how we dress, how we, th- how we uh, pursue entertainment, the kinds of things we do with our time, that uh, we should not be fashioned by the world. We follow the world's fashions in, in one sense because sometimes the fashions of the world simply are inappropriate or inappropriate. But whether the standards that change, there are uh, values that are re-evaluated over time. That what's right and wrong is sort of a fluid matter. So that what is right 100 years ago may not be right today in terms of morality. And even what was right five years ago or ten years ago may not be right today. Which, of course, we realize those Fluctuating values are not part of God's word. His values are permanent. So we are not to conform to the world. So in terms of conforming, that is sometimes a matter of forethought, what we agree to do or not agree to do. Again, it starts in the mind, what we are willing to accept. 
that comes out of the world and we want to consider whether or not that's part of our lives. So we, he says here that we think about our minds. What are, what is the human mind like? It says over in Romans chapter 8 verse 7, it says the carnal mind, the unconverted mind, is enmity against God. Now I think in reality, maybe even some of us, when we were first being called, uh, that seemed a pretty stark statement. That we are in, you know, enemies of God. The carnal mind was enmity against his God. We can't keep his law because we just can't do that. But people don't always, we don't always look at ourselves with that kind of analysis. But the Bible tells us that in Proverbs chapter 20, 27, I will turn back there. In Proverbs 27, Verse 19, Proverbs 27, verse 19, it reads, As in water, face reflects face. We, we can look at a undisturbed puddle or body of water, and there is a, a pretty clear reflection of our, of our face. But then it adds, So a man's heart reveals the man. Our heart, our mind, how we think, what we think. What are our values? Those things reflect the mind, the, the personal himself, his values, his very nature. So the heart, the mind reflects who we are and the kind of person we are. And so he tells us then, back in Romans again, Romans 12, that we are to be transformed. Now the, the Greek word transformed uh, if you look at Vine's expository dictionary, it gives this as the obligation to undergo a complete change which, under the power of God, will find expression in character and conduct. So the phrase I use for the title, it all starts in the mind, then what's going on in our mind is manifested in what we do, in what we say, how we act. And so it's telling us we should go through a somewhat spiritually radical and very thorough transformation. Uh, the Greek word refers to a, uh, what we, in our language, call metamorphosis. And that's a, it talks about here the definition out of dictionary.com. Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. It says, a change of the form or nature of a thing or person into a completely different one. By natural or supernatural means. Now we think about the natural things, the most, most common metamorphosis. We think about this example of what we have, you know, with a, with a butterfly, how when it's in the cocoon and what it looks like, then it goes through this change and out pops this beautiful butterfly. It uh, reminds me of a cartoon I saw once that uh, had this butterfly driving a car and pulled over uh, for speeding. And when uh, the butterfly presented its, its, its license, the uh, policeman, and he goes, uh, that's an old picture. That was before I became a butterfly. <laughs> uh, 
because there's such major change in, in, in this deal. So it, uh, this, it's a metamorphosis. It says a, a change in nature of a thing or a person that we can actually change by natural or supernatural means. We really don't change naturally. We do need supernatural help. We need the help of God to do that. And he points out here that he says that there's only conformed, but to be transformed. So how do you do that? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this renewing of your mind. Uh, going back to Vines again, he says this is the adjustment of the moral and spiritual vision and thinking to the mind of God, which is designed to have a transforming effect on one's life, how one lives, how one acts, how one talks, must to be changed. And, of course, it tells us in Romans chapter 8, it talks about being led, in verse 14, by, about being led by God's Holy Spirit, being influenced by that so that our thinking does, in fact, change. So we're supposed to be transformed Made different, we're supposed to have our minds renewed or steeped by God's in, God's in God's Word and His law, and of course led by His Holy Spirit. He tells us there we should prove what is acceptable. Uh, we should discern what's acceptable. We should analyze and be able to scrutinize those things about what is truly acceptable in God's eyes. What is a, a genuine. Uh, Article And that word is often used in uh, proving it. This has to do with uh, sometimes gold and silver jewelry as well as diamonds to be able to look very carefully and, re- and determine, discern whether or not it is a real, a real diamond, what, what kind of diamond. Yeah, there are various grades, and since I haven't bought very many of them, I have no idea what they mean. Uh, but uh, there are ways of determining the quality of a diamond based on proving it. So with that in mind, I'd like to draw our attention to uh, an article, and I've referred to, to this article before, and frankly, I think that it's worth reading on uh, various occasions, more than, more than once, that uh, Mr. Weston wrote in the uh, Living Church News that goes back a couple of years, and uh, this was in the uh, September, October 27th, that's entitled, What Drives Your Decisions?, I won't go into right now. I do have a quote later in the, in the sermon. But the article talks about what drives our decisions. That's the title, which has to do with how we analyze things, how we think about things, which, again, it starts in the mind, how we, when we're looking for uh, a decision on our part or maybe we even ask someone else if, you know, if we should or should not do that, we're thinking about whether or not it's the right thing to do. And Mr. Weston makes reference to various matters of fashion and trends, both of men and women, that uh, sometimes we analyze whether or not or discuss whether or not we should do these things and follow the ways of the world. Uh, it's interesting about hair, whether you cut it or don't cut it, <laughs> because in many cases it doesn't look like it's been cut on the part of the world, that the way the fashions of some, especially it seems like some of the athletes, that the hairdos, I will call, uh, almost cry out, just look at me. 
I'm trying to make uh, my hair different so that I'm I'm different uh, as from anyone else. And of course, in the article, he talks about whether or not we adopt the ways of the world, or whether we scrutinize and analyze these things carefully with God's Spirit as to whether or not we should conform to those things. Because sometimes it's it's legal, but it's not expedient. Really, it's not a good idea. It's not wise. And so we have to analyze that. Let's turn over to Romans, or Hebrews, I beg your pardon, Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through verse 14, breaking into the middle of a thought. And here in verse 11, Paul is writing, making reference to Jesus Christ. And he says, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though the, this, by this time you ought to be teachers, many of them have been in the church for a long time, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. And for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food, and Mr. Weston explains that in the article, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use of their senses exercised, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That it's something that we think about. It's using our minds, using hopefully our spiritual minds in order to determine whether or not we're going to adopt the ways of the world and become transformed by not adopting those things that are not right. So in verse 3 he says then, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone, right down to this day and age, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So he says, because of these things, he says, I think we should Think, I'm asking you to think so that we don't get too high-minded about ourselves. We don't make the mistake of comparing ourselves with one another because at it, it, it best we might say we're outperforming spiritually one of our brethren when in fact God expects far less of that person because of their background, their spiritual situation, and because of where they were, were, they were spiritually conditioned when God called them. God may at that point may actually expect less than what he expects of you or me when we go through those kinds of thoughts. But he tells us there then that we have to not think inappropriately about ourselves, but to think soberly. Again, that means to very carefully. Introspectively, we're admonished at Passover time that we should examine ourselves. We should scrutinize ourselves very carefully about what's going on in our lives. So we rather we think soundly, 
when he talks about that, that the word soundly is, is, is an alternative translation to where we are realistic about our spiritual uh, welfare and our spiritual being, how close we are to God, that we are realistic about our our state at that time. Now, uh, perhaps it's a, t- a tangent. That's not to uh, be confused with a wrong kind of humility where we simply downplay ourselves. We all are given a measure of faith, as Paul pointed out here. We're a measure of faith. We're given understanding. And so a false humility is just to, to put ourselves down. That's not what is being talked about. We are to examine ourselves realistically. Where are we? What is our state of mind and state of spiritual well-being? So Paul writes here, these first three verses, I, I think, are... Uh, they're, they're given the way they are as preparation for what he is about to discuss in the remainder of Romans chapter 12. And what he says here is pivotal, pivotal because he's leading up to using our minds and that these things all start with the mind. Now, it is also worth noting that when we go from one chapter to another, those are not necessarily inspired breaks in the uh, in the letter or the epistle in the, in the scriptures, and those scriptures obviously also relate to the latter part of chapter eleven. And there, in chapter eleven, Paul is clarifying the future of Israel that they were not all lost, and God's mercy would eventually be extended to them and all Gentiles alike. And Paul points out that God's ways are beyond our grasp beyond our finding out, certainly without his Holy Spirit. Back, it goes back to, in, in chapter 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? That it's... We simply have no way of grasping the depth of the wisdom and the understanding and the knowledge of God. Far beyond our reach. Now, after we're called and given God's Holy Spirit, that should change somewhat. Over time, we should come to understand the mind of God. And giving that, giving us that understanding obviously comes through His Holy Spirit, through that gift. And we don't, uh, we don't have the right, human beings don't have the right to question God's plan, God's purpose. As things unfold, it's beyond our understanding. God is doing, fulfilling His plan the best way to achieve the growth and expansion of His family. But he tells us that we are then to make a complete change in our lives so that our minds are renewed so that our minds do, in fact, become like the mind of God and that of Jesus Christ. We begin to think as God thinks. And I think that's the the point of Mr. Western's article, that we are to learn to think and make judgments, make discernments, based on the guidelines and the laws and the, the statutes that God gives us. We are to be able to think as he thinks and make the right and good choices. Understand, we should come to understand his mercy his attitude toward others, toward the world, 
and of course all of Israel. So Paul uses this logic, again, this whole idea of considering God, the mind of God, and then tells us that we should, by exercising our senses, our minds, come to be able to do certain things. So Paul really gives uh, one overriding guideline and then expands that as we go through chapter uh, chapter 12. So it's uh, a matter of changing, a matter of coming to understand the mind of God. So we go back to, uh, to uh, uh, verse 4. These first three verses leading up to this, he said we should have our minds transformed. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So Paul is going to talk about unity, oneness, oneness of motive, oneness of goals and objectives, being part of the body of Jesus Christ, we should have this idea that we want to be part of that body. And there are ways that we can do that. Well, we have to change our mind. Again, what is what is the human mind like? We know that that God says it's the enmity against his law. He tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse, verse 6. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. He says, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That if we are transforming our minds to be like that, and be conformed to the mind of God, that we are going to be able to have this peace. We're going to be able to have this oneness. So he tells us that that's, that's what Paul is leading to, is he is encouraging them to be one in the body of Christ and one with God. And so as he, he goes through this, in verse 8, he talks about exhorting who gives give with liberality. So we should be generous, be willing to help others. He leads with diligence. If he's leading, he does that carefully. He has a lot of responsibility, and he who shows mercy to do it with cheerfulness. I mean, we should do this willingly. Now, we have this phrase that uh, we talk about things being second nature to us, right? Sometimes second nature is not a good thing. How we react to situations is the first the first thing we think about this second and is, is, is first nature is not good. So we talk about it. But it, nonetheless, sometimes we do these things, which means by second nature, it's just we. It's how we just automatically react. But our process of being transformed says we should not react carnally. If we have the spiritual mind, that our reaction is like God's reaction in any given situation, having his mind. So we do this, we show mercy, we do it with cheerfulness, not begrudgingly, but we do it with sincerity. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, that we don't want to pretend that we love one another. Abhor that which is evil, cling to what is good. Abhors, it's, uh, it's having a horror of. We can ask ourselves, do we... Uh, 
Do we abhor the same things that God abhors? Do we have the same depth of emotion about those things that God hates? He lists those things back in Proverbs. We can ask ourselves if we have the same abhorrence for the things that God hates as well as the same love for the same things that God loves. Verse 10 says, Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to cut to uh, to one another. So, we, so giving deference, considering someone else is better than we. we over in uh, Philippians, it tells us that we should esteem others better than ourselves. That's the mind of God. And sometimes that's not how we view one another, to esteem others better than ourselves. Verse 11 says, Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. These are the kinds of things that produce unity. These are the things that produce peace. What Paul is pointing out, with this transformation of our minds to that of the mind of God, these are the actions that are forthcoming, that are manifested by the mind of God in us. Distributing, verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, giving, given to hospitality. And the margin here talks about uh, given, translation is pursuing this idea of, of hospitality. And we can ask ourselves how that the mind of God literally looks for opportunities to serve, looks for opportunities to to share and to be hospitable. And then verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You read through these admonitions or these instructions and guidance that Paul is giving the Romans. It's it's sort of like reading back in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 where Christ talks about what is real Christianity, where he talks about the things that we were supposed to do. And there we find the same admonition that these are the things we are supposed to think about doing. We are to deliberately undertake these these efforts and bless those who persecute you. That's, uh, again, the initial reaction is defensive. When someone does something we don't like or accuses us of something because of what we believe, uh, it's easy to become defensive. That's the first reaction. And we want to give back the same we were just given. And yet the mind of God says we should not do that. We should bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It tells us we should pray for our enemies. Now, we can pay lip service to that. But praying for your enemy is tough. <laughs> That's hard. Again, it reminds me of the article that Mr. McNair wrote when I'm about do hard things. Well, there are physical hard things that test our metal, but praying for your enemy, that's hard. <laughs> and yet God says that's what we should do. Bless those who persecute you. And if you, you ever, you ever felt persecuted at church? Someone says something unkind. Maybe accusatory. And our reaction is to go home and pray for that person. 
(laughs) That's a a challenge, but that's uh, what we should do. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Show empathy. Empathy and care and concern for one another, those are ingredients, or that is an ingredient to unity. That's an ingredient to having the mind of God permeate the, the body of Jesus Christ. All of us, we contribute to that. And then he says in verse 16, goes back to 16, uh, ties back into verses 4 and 5, but be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble, and do not be wise in your own opinion. Well, we, being wise in our own opinion, if you think about the opinions, things we state, but uh, being wise in our own opinion is what we think about, how we think of ourselves. So we should not be wise in our own opinion. And repay no one evil for evil. Have high regard for good things in the sight of all men. So this, no, repay no one evil for evil, in or out of the church, in or out of the body of Jesus Christ, whether it be our neighbor, our co-worker, or someone in the supermarket. We read our stories on the web of how various things happen in unfortunate circumstances, even in the public. And some of us may have some of those hopefully mild experiences, but we should not repay evil for evil. And then in verse 18, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, on you and me, live peaceably with all men. Going back in again to Hebrews, where he talked about God's Spirit is going to produce peace. It's going to produce unity. So we, we have this habit of daily prayer. We have this habit of Bible study in order to have the mind of God infused into our minds through the power of his Holy Spirit. A couple of examples of not having the mind of God and sometimes allowing ourselves to get into a state of mind because we don't think clearly in the heat of the moment. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 13. First Samuel chapter 13. Verses 4 through 14, and I'm not going to read all of, all of those verses, but that's, that's where the, the story is related. That has to do with Saul's unlawful sacrifice. And this is in a, the heat of the moment for Saul and a turning point in his life. And that he's made, makes a rash mistake and he's waiting on Samuel to come and do a sacrifice because he has, he's looking for the mind of God, looking for God's guidance, God's instruction about whether or not he should uh, do battle with the Philistines. And then he tells us there that Samuel delayed coming. Whatever, you know, there, there's some details that are not shared with us there in the account, 
why why Samuel delayed or whatever the appointment point in time might have been. But in Saul's mind, Samuel didn't show up in time. And as the days passed, his army, his support began to wane. And there were some who hid themselves, and there are some who deserted. And so, again, now in the heat of the moment, Saul begins to think. What do I do now? Uh, What's my alternative? Do I keep waiting? If I wait and wait and wait, they'll all be gone. And I'll be left with no, and certainly an inadequate army in order to do the task. Because it talks about, he certainly, uh, he's undermanned. Uh, back in verse 5, it talks about the Philistines having 30,000 chariots. Uh, some translations point 3,000. But regardless, he's, uh, there's about a 2 to 1 or 3 to 1 ratio of the Philistine army versus what Israel had. So he is, humanly speaking, I guess Saul began to panic and began to think, what do I do? And verse 9, so Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. He, at that time, doesn't appear to be too preoccupied about the presumptuous act he had done. And perhaps Samuel was uh, inspired and given some understanding about what, what Saul had done. Or maybe he's just, he's just asking because it, it, it doesn't, the situation doesn't seem right. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down to me at Gilgal. Now, did did he say that or was he sucking to himself mentally? He's thinking these things. And I have not made supplication to the eternal. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. I felt like I had no alternative here. I had to do something or everyone would be gone. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolish, foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of God. And now the, the eternal will have established, would, have, would have established your kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And it, I'm sure this there was a wave of emotion that swept over Saul at that point and realized that his action had, the precipitous action, had very severe, strong consequences because he had allowed himself in a moment of desperation, analyzing it, began thinking about what could be done. And in reality, uh, I, I suppose it's fair to say that Saul was more had more fear of the Philistines than he had of God and not following the example that he knew was appropriate and who could do the sacrifices. Over in Acts chapter 4, again we have a fairly well-known example of someone doing things in a precipitous way. 
in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, verses 34 and 35. This is during the early part of the church, and there was everyone was taking care of one another. Verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. Think about that, brother. Someone sells his house in order to have the money to share with other brethren. That's a pretty strong, I say, that's a pretty converted act (laughs) to be willing to ante up one's domain, one's house. They sold, they said, possessions, possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And there were those that didn't do that. Maybe there were those that that uh, Jane just had to just make the decision to not go that far. But that that strong, righteous example uh, led someone or some ones to think about. Uh, how they might take advantage of that circumstance. They were looking at or reviewing in their mind, what can I do to appear righteous? We have the example then in chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira in the first, first 10 verses of, of, the, of the chapter, in chapter 5. And this was a carnal aspiration to look good in the eyes of the other members of the church. They decided to raise some money with their own, own own way, and then to only give part of it. We don't know whether it was most of it or it was just a, a small percentage. But they were professing that that's what they had uh, been given for their possessions. And one would think this probably uh, would imply most of it just because there probably was some idea of what uh, their possessions were worth. But they held some back. And had a wrong attitude trying to get the admiration or the respect of those that were around them who were doing things that were right to do at the moment. And they wanted to be part of the, uh, part of the group. Have the same respect that others were given. Now, that was unwise because obviously it cost both of them their lives. Because they too held back, they were lying to the disciples and, and Peter reference or just apostles, and Peter references that that in, re, in reality they were lying to the power of God, lying to God as well. Over in Romans chapter twelve, well, again we'll turn back there in a moment, but he just talks about having various gifts. We don't have to compare ourselves with one another. We each of us with talents, with gifts from God. We have ways we can serve one another. And we should use those things to to contribute to the whole. That Our contributions, again, those those talents, those strengths, those character traits that we can share with our brethren, that's how we contribute to the unity within the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 
we just read one verse here, verse 12. Pull this one verse out of the context because it's, it's adequate by itself. Now, Paul is talking about being compared with other people that were, were teaching. He says, if we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Paul just simply says it's not a good thing to do to compare ourselves with one another. We should always compare ourselves individually with that, with the example of Jesus Christ. Compare our minds, how we, we think, with what the Bible tells us is the mind of God. And again, at best, we might come out on, in our evaluation on, with the upper hand, but not knowing fully what God expects of others, as well as what we, He expects of us. Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we'll read verses 1 through 9. It says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any sense of unity, he talks about here this fellowship, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, there's oneness of mind within the church, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, the ultimate expression of unity, be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That all of us individually are striving to develop the mind of Jesus Christ. Trying to develop our minds to think and work like that of God the Father. One accord, one mind. And to that end, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Not to show off, not to advance oneself with some motive of promotion or, or recognition, but in lowliness of mind, the right kind of humility, the right esteeming of ourselves, in lowliness of mind, then let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Not that we shouldn't take care of our interest. We should. We should take care of our lives and our needs. At the same time, we should also look outward and express our love for others and their concerns and their needs. Then he says in verse 5, Let this mind, the mind expressed in verses 1 through 4, the attitude of verses 1 through 4, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And again, pursuing the, that how that's exposed or how that's expressed. Who, in being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now, the only ones who thought much about Jesus Christ were those few followers that he had. And when all was said and done, after three and a half years of ministry, 
he had 11 disciples. One had left. And he had about 120 followers that we know of. So after all that amount of work, he didn't have his, he had no reputation outside of that group. Even his own brothers, his own family didn't recognize who he was. Not willing to pay him the respect that he was the son of God, in spite of seeing the kinds of things, I'm sure, firsthand, that they had seen him do. It was only after his resurrection that they began to recognize him. And he pointed out here, then he said, the being of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, very lowly position, spiritually a bond servant for all of mankind, and then coming in the likeness of men. What must it have been like to have been part of the family of God, eternal life from the no beginning, no end, and then emptying himself of that divinity, that power, that inherent life, and becoming a physical man. That's quite a transformation. Coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, because he now could see the dramatic difference between being human and being God, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He recognized just how much, as a man, he needed his father. How dependent he was upon God's spirit. He says that God commanded him to say what he said. He had, The inspiration was constant, but he recognized how much he needed that constant, every waking moment of inspiration. Humbled himself because he knew that he had to have God's help in order to do what he was sent here to do. And because he understood all of that, never failed to recognize his need for the Father and did complete the mission it says, therefore, in verse 9, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. He qualified to be restored back to the throne of God, being our perfect example. And part of that perfect example was reaching this point of humility and an absolute understanding of the mind of God that he needed that inspiration, that guidance. Again, every waking moment of his life. Humility is clearly emphasized in these verses. That's the kind of thing that contributes to the unity of the church, to the unity of the congregation, where we esteem others better than ourselves. If all of us do that, there is no competition. There is no wrong thought. Now, I know we're human. We're talking about the ideal here, is that God wants us to have that kind of mind. And he mentions over in verses, or in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. Wow. Everything, every day, without any complaining. How many of us go through a single day without expressing some complaint? Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I have to put mine up. Uh, but think about that. Do all things without complaining 
without murmuring, without disputing. That's uh, the mind of God in action. Now, obviously, we do have good examples. There are good examples in the Bible of the right kind of conduct. Paul even says over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, those of us that are using God's Spirit, those that are developing something, have this mind, for mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. He, if we are striving, God will help us see ourselves the same way he sees us. And nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, we are working toward the kingdom, whatever we've done to become like God, whatever we have done to develop the mind of Jesus Christ, let us walk by the same. Let us keep doing the same things that manifest God's spirit, that manifest the mind of Jesus Christ. Keep doing, living the same way. And therefore, pardon me, verse 17, brethren, Joining, join in following my example. Paul set a good example. We can set good examples for one another. And when we see good examples, we want to follow those. Because it says here, note those who so walk. Those who follow Paul's example were to be watched and noted because that was conveying the kinds of things they were to do. The way they were to act, the kind of lives they were supposed to live. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. If we're going to adopt a pattern, if we're going to be patterned after something, we want to be patterned after someone who has setting a good example. We want to be patterned literally after Jesus Christ as well. Over in First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 13, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. It means protect your mind. Wrap your mind with the mind of God. Wrap your mind with his word through prayer and study and examining his word. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober, self-restrained. Self-controlled, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're to, I say, uh, exercise our minds, girding up the loins of our minds. The same way we exercise to maintain good physical health, we are to use God's Spirit to think the way we're supposed to think. Hebrews chapter eight. Verse 10, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, quoting from the Old Testament, 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. End of the age, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind. We understand God's laws. We study his word, and these things, again, become part of our nature. These are the do's and don'ts that resonate daily in our minds of what we are going to do and what we're not going to do. That oftentimes our minds and our actions are checked by God's Holy Spirit. We respond to it. We follow that influence that comes with the power of God's Spirit. I'll put their, my, their, my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. Heart, our heart, our minds are synonymous. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Because those things are in our minds and in our heart. We will be like we, we can become, like God. And in due time, even in this life, we can have that kind of attitude and work toward that. Finally, here in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. We've been raised up through baptism and made a part of his church. So seek those things which are above. And then in verse 2, set your mind on things above not on things on the earth. Transform our minds. Follow the pattern of good works that come through the words and accounts of the God's word and the Bible and Jesus Christ to set our minds on those things, not follow the fashions and the, the, the passions and the wayward parts of the world. Let our minds be transformed where we become, if you will, different people, completely different. Now, in this life, we know we don't quite get there, but that's the ideal, that's the goal, that's the intention. I want to just read briefly from the article I mentioned earlier in the sermon by Mr. Weston, and again, this is from the September-October 2017 Living Church News. You're on the last page of the article. He writes, God expects us to learn to make righteous judgments based on the word of God and Christ dwelling in our minds by the Holy Spirit. We must come to a place where instead of looking for permission to do what we always wanted to do, we learn to savor the things of God, not the approaches and customs of the world. And I'll just reference even, there's a little bit, little bit, little bit of the, the uh, latest article in the Living Church News by Mr. Weston about bringing into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ, about this idea of doing what we always wanted to do, this how we pray God's will be done. points out here that we're, we're not to do the, the approaches, not to have the approaches and customs of this world. And then toward the end of the article he writes, referring to God, he is creating children who think as he thinks. He gives us basic principles. Some are spelled out, as in the Ten Commandments. 
Statutes and judgments also help us to understand his mind on an array of issues. But he also wants us to learn to think as he thinks in an ever-changing array of circumstances. This requires not a never-ending list of do's and don'ts, but a mind that discerns, that savors the way he would choose. God wants us to develop his mind. And this was even a a good portion, a good, uh, I guess, a uh, part of the, the text of the sermonette. And I'm sitting there listening to it, and I'm thinking, maybe this is what we're supposed to talk about today. But God wants us to have his mind, and he gives that opportunity for you and me through the gift of his Holy Spirit, something that you and I will celebrate tomorrow. But how we use that and our effort to literally reign in our minds from the carnal mind to the spiritual mind, Because the spiritual mind produces life and peace.